following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. The verses to which I would call your attention this morning are verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21. These words bring us face to face with the return of the king. The return of the king. I want to begin by reading the passage And so, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, Christ-exalting words of the triune God. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Ever since the Garden of Eden, God's people have been a waiting people. Not long after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and death, God, you remember, cursed the serpent who had deceived Eve and consequently threw the entire human race into an irreversible state of sin and misery. And it was then, as God was spelling out the curse of the serpent, that he made a promise that would permanently orient the hope and longing of the people of God. While directly addressing the serpent and indirectly arousing the hope of our first parents, God said these words, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It was then that God impregnated his people with the promise of a coming, conquering son. It was this promise that set the entire course of redemptive history on an unswerving trajectory towards the promised Messiah. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, and we see Lamech in faith, naming his son Noah, saying, and I quote, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, speaking of Noah, which means rest, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This one will bring us the reversal of the curse. He was hoping that Noah would be the promised seed who would reverse the curse. But we read a little bit further and we see Noah is just not the guy. We see him getting drunk off of his own grapes. After that, God promised a 75-year-old man by the name of Abraham that in him and through his offspring, the nations of the earth would be blessed, would be blessed And Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac to be born. 25 years. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, then wait 20 years for the birth of their twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, you'll recall, grows up and he wants to marry Rachel. But he works and waits for seven years for her. And instead of her father giving Rachel's hand in marriage, he deceives Jacob by giving him his other daughter, Leah. And of course, it was through Leah that Judah was born and the promised Messiah would come through Judah's line. And so the wait continues. Years pass. The descendants of Jacob that are known as Israel find themselves as slaves in the land of Egypt. And they wait in harsh affliction for 400 years before God brings them out of Egypt. And as we continue to trace the lineage of Judah, David is born. And even though he is anointed by Samuel to be king to replace Saul, many believe he had to wait about 15 years before he actually ascended to the throne at the age of 30. And after becoming king at 30 years old, God made a promise and a covenant with David that one of his descendants would sit upon his throne forever. A promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, David's greater son. But from the time God made that covenant with David to the birth of Jesus Christ, 
1,000 years have gone by. God's people have always been a waiting people. Meanwhile, God's people are waiting and waiting. They waited through hundreds of years of wicked kings and ruthless rulers. They waited through long years of exile in Assyria and then another one in Babylon. And when one of the final prophets in the Old Testament arrives on the scene after the promised reconstruction of the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophet Malachi closes his prophecy with these words, and I quote, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name and listen to this promise, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. One of the final promises of the Old Testament. And we know from the time this promise was made to the rising of this sun of righteousness, the arrival of Christ, that the rising of this sun over the horizon of dashed hopes and years of anticipation, 400 silent years go by. 400 years of silence go by. And finally, when the forerunner of the Messiah is born, John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, in remembrance of Malachi's prophecy and promise, opens his mouth to praise God and to also address his newborn son, John. And this is what he says to him. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Listen, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. In other words, the morning has come. The time of fulfillment had come after centuries of longing and waiting and crying out for the fulfillment of the promise that God made to our first parents way back when in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is born to a young virgin in fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. And after 40 days, Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, take him to present him to God in the temple. And Luke tells us that while they were there, they came across a righteous, devout man by the name of Simeon who holds Jesus in his arms and says to God, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He looks into the eyes of this child who can't even talk and sees God's promised salvation. And the reason I bring up Simeon is because he is described as one who was, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for God's eschatological comfort to be brought to Israel. That would come through the Messiah. And it doesn't end there. Luke tells us that an 84-year-old woman by the name of Anna, who was also in the temple during that time, witnesses this glorious moment of fulfillment. And I quote, Coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, God's people have always been described as a waiting people. Always. 
Even when we skip ahead to the end of Luke's gospel, we read of a righteous and bold man who went to Pontius Pilate himself to request the body of Jesus for burial while it was still hanging lifeless on that cross. And Luke describes this man, Joseph of Arimathea, as a man who was, quote, waiting for the redemption, sorry, waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is born in fulfillment and as the fulfillment of God's promises. It reminds me of the first verse in that 1868 Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, which reads, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and fears of all these years, dating back to Genesis 3.15, are met in you tonight, my lamb. It's here. As we celebrate and rejoice in the birth of Christ this Christmas season, we cannot do so without a view, without an eye towards his final coming. When he will complete everything he began in his first coming. Church, this is our blessed hope. Not just the virgin born babe lying helpless in the manger. Not just the sacrificial lamb hanging defenseless on the cross. Not just the conquering lion emerging triumphantly from the grave. And not just the high priest and advocate sitting right now at the right hand of God on our behalf. Our ultimate hope is in this king returning victoriously with the armies of heaven to bring a final end to all sin and all rebellion and all death and to then usher us into his new creation where we will live with him forever. That is our ultimate and highest hope. As much as we glory in the cross, as much as we rejoice in the resurrection and appreciate the ascension, none of these historical events are ends in and of themselves. Each of these events, as glorious as they are, are preparatory in nature. That is, they prepare us for something else, and I dare say, something better. And that something else is known as the beatific vision the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus that one day we will see God. That's the beatific vision, the sight that brings holy bliss. This was the hope of godly Job who said in the midst of his tribulation, I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth after my skin has been thus destroyed. Yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. No wonder he ends that by saying, my heart faints within me. Beloved, that is the goal of Calvary. That is the reason for the resurrection. And that is the ultimate aim of the ascension of Jesus as our high priest and mediator to prepare us to once again behold the beauty of God in all of his resplendent holiness for our full and lasting joy. That's what we're being prepared for. Have you ever taken the time, I wonder, to really ponder what Jesus in his perfect, sinless humanity elevated as the greatest motivation for his disciples to remain pure in heart? 
Have you ever truly considered what he, the son of God and son of man, held up and elevated as the strongest motivation to employ all the resources of divine grace and help in order to keep the heart, the inner man, the inner woman, the true you, pure and uncontaminated and unpolluted and undefiled by the flesh and the world, which is arguably the single most difficult task on this earth? Do you know what he promised and presented as the ultimate motivation and reward for remaining pure in heart? Listen to the sixth beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Christ. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. They shall see God. Consider that. The most difficult thing to do on earth, even as the greatest, godliest Christian, remain pure in heart, is placed next to and alongside of the most glorious and satisfying thing to experience in heaven. Beholding the beauty of God in all of his majestic holiness. If that in your mind is not the highest motivation, you haven't even come close to understanding what it would be like and what it is to behold God, to see him face to face. Jesus motivates us to engage in a war that is so fierce and so intense and so unrelenting and difficult and demanding and at times so completely exhausting and utterly discouraging by pointing us to the greatest reward of a well-fought fight for inward purity. You shall see God. You shall see God. That is our ultimate hope, and that is why Jesus will return again and take us to himself, to bring us into the presence of God, where we, as Revelation 22.4 says, will see his face. We will see him as he is. If you know of something else to live for, something higher, something greater, please inform me after the service. Psalm 11.7 says, the upright shall behold his face. Psalm 17.15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Notice the combination of satisfaction and seeing God. As we turn our attention this morning to Revelation chapter 19, we turn to the climax of history. We turn to the pinnacle of time, the high point of the ages. We come face to face with the final coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We cannot accurately celebrate the Christmas season or the birth of this child without a view towards his final coming when he will bring to completion everything he began at his first coming. Paul calls this the Christian's blessed hope, the Christian's blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I've stated before, if your eschatological views, however tightly you hold to them, do not leave you with a longing for our Savior's return, there is something seriously wrong. If you cannot echo some of the last lines of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus, with an eager heart, Something is wrong. You see, not only were God's people awaiting people from the time of Eden until the birth of Christ, but God's people are still awaiting people, even in the days of the new covenant. 
Luke 12, 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You remember at his ascension, when he's leaving, these angels echo these words. They say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And one author quotes, this coming again shapes the posture of God's New Testament church into an anticipatory people, just like his people in the Old Testament. Just to give you some context of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, we come now to what is really the sixth of seven parallel sections in the book of Revelation, each section, of course, spanning the entire gospel era from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. And so as expected, this section ends with the return of Christ and the final judgment. And what's interesting is that beginning in chapter 12, which I argued a couple weeks ago, we saw the entrance of four main enemies that really take center stage from chapters 12 through 22. You remember that the first enemy to enter the stage is the great red dragon in chapter 12. But if you were to continue reading in chapter 13, you read about the entrance of the beast from the sea, which goes on to kind of symbolize political persecution, and then the beast from the earth, which we know to be the false prophet, as he is called here. And then you have Babylon, the great prostitute, the world system, distracting, wooing God's people. But what's interesting is that now that we come to 18, 19, and 20, each of these enemies make their exit in reverse order from their entrances. Babylon exits the scene. God deals with her in chapter 18. Here in chapter 19, the two beasts are dealt with. And then in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, the dragon will be dealt with once and for all. And so chapter 19 brings us to the return of the king and the judgment, the exit of these two beasts, along with the world of the ungodly. You remember that John is addressing first century churches in seven cities located in Asia Minor. And these churches, much like our church and the churches throughout all of history, were threatened by what threatens all churches in every age. False teaching, persecution, compromise with the immoral world around us, and spiritual complacency. These churches were under attack and have been under attack, and the church will be under attack until the end of the age. That's why the dragon is doing what he's doing. That's why the beast and the false prophet are doing what they're doing. And that's why Babylon wants to bring the world in to the church. And so we come to Revelation 19. John has just given us a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we see Christ and his bride finally reunited and they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. 
And we see the 24 elders again and the living creatures from Revelation 5 worshiping God and saying, Amen, hallelujah. And then from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. For he said to me, these are the true words of God. And John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But as we come to this final portion in Revelation 19, we come face to face with a different supper, another supper. It's called the Supper of God in verse 17. And it refers to the final defeat of this godless world. The final victory over the world and all of its sin. Friends, you are probably thinking, or you might be thinking, why on earth are you bringing such a bloody, brutal message on Christmas Eve? I wanted to hear about angels. I wanted to hear about the star over Bethlehem. I wanted to hear about shepherds and the wise men. Why would you bring this up? You're going to scare visitors off. You're going to scare some of us off. No, I trust that. It won't be the case. Because this is what Christmas ultimately points to. The Son of God being born to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and yet coming at the end of the age to clean up what he began in his first coming. And this is where our hope is. As I sat with two brothers over study on Friday morning, considering our sermons and comparing our sermons. I asked them, where in this text is the hope to bring to people? And one wise brother said, if your hope is not aroused and your faith is not excited over the extinguishing of sin and evil, I don't know, I don't have a greater hope. When we look out into this world and we see human trafficking and we see the countless evils coming across the headlines every day, friends, that's coming to an end. When we see a world ignoring God, even on the Lord's day, that's coming to an end. When we see all of these agendas, political and religious agendas, to conform all of us into a godless society, all of that's coming to an end. Right now, this is your time to sin. This is your time to live it up. But it's coming to an end. Because what will begin on that day and last for all eternity is a world of righteousness where people serve God with all their heart and soul and mind and their strength, all their glorified, resurrected bodily strength, being able to serve him, love him, and walk with him in white. That's what's coming. 
That's what we are celebrating today. I have divided the passage really into three simple sections. Three simple sections. In verses 11 to 16, we see the coming judge. In verses 17 and 18, we see the gruesome invitation. And then in verses 19 through 21, we see the final slaughter. The coming judge, the gruesome invitation, and the final slaughter. Let's consider the first heading, the coming judge. Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And by the way, each of these points or each of these divisions in the text really come out naturally because they begin with that prophetic formula, then I saw or and I saw. Then I saw, verse 11. Then I saw, verse 17. And I saw, verse 19. So it kind of helps us to think of it and divide it naturally. He says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. A white horse. But this white horse is not alone. It says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is one who is coming back in fulfillment of God's promises. He is faithful, meaning he promised that he would come back for his people and he's keeping good on that, making good on that promise. He promised that he would go and prepare a place for us and he's coming back to bring us to that place. He is faithful. This same one was promised for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament and he came. Well, if he came once in fulfillment of God's promise, he will, mark it down, come again in fulfillment of God's promise. He is faithful in his word and he is faithful to his father. As the son of his father, he has come in faithfulness to carry out everything his father gave him to do as the son of man. We saw last week, he came in fulfillment of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 in itself is not really a prophetic psalm, but the writer of Hebrews picks it up. And by the way, when the New Testament authors tell us how to interpret the Old Testament, we better listen. We better listen. We saw last week that the, the problem of the ages, the problem of history is the problem of dominion lost. Adam and Eve lost their dominion. They transferred that dominion to Satan. They took the crown that God had given them, the crown of glory and honor, and they gave it to the serpent. Well, the son of man comes in fulfillment of that promise to crush the serpent. He comes and he removes his crown of glory in heaven, as it were, and he takes upon himself a crown of thorns. And in his battle against Satan, he takes Satan's crown and he crushes his crown, as it were, to the ground. And as, that sec as the last Adam, the father of a new humanity, God takes an infinitely greater crown of glory and honor, places it upon the head of his son as the representative of the new human race, and now he shares that crown and that rule and that dominion with all of his people. He is faithful. And notice the other one. He, he is faithful and true. He is reality. He is true. Everything Babylon and this world has to offer 
is just transitory in nature. It's fake. Hebrews calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin. You lay hold of it, it's fun, it's fast, it's satisfying, but just for a moment, because there's no true substance behind it. The one who is coming is true, authentic, genuine, the radiance of God's glory, the substance of all that is glorious, the fullness of God in bodily form residing in the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Psalm 17 links up satisfaction with seeing God. I will awake in your likeness and be satisfied in seeing you. He is called faithful and true. And notice, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is an echo of Psalm 96, verse 13, where we read that Yahweh is coming and he will judge the world in righteousness. He has come to judge and to make war. And really, this can kind of be misleading if we're not careful, because in war, we think of two sides going at it. Back and forth, back and forth. One missile goes, another missile comes. One missile goes, one warrior goes, another warrior comes. We think of a, a war as back and forth, but as we're going to see by the end of the, the scene here, there's no back and forth. There's a gathering of the world by the false prophet and the beast. There's a gathering for battle, but then he ends the battle with the word. It's anticlimactic. You got this, it's like, it's like seeing a movie, right? It's, it's just building up, building up, building up. You have, you have all these demonic forces just launching their assaults upon Christ and his, and his people. And then we're waiting and then the movie ends with just one simple defeat, thrown into the lake of fire. That's it. Because there's no back and forth battle when it comes to God. Notice the description of him. I counted 10, ten, ten, ten uh, ways that he has described. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is why he is fit to judge, because his eyes penetrate the soul. They burn through all the facade. They burn through all the, the pretenses. They burn through all the hypocrisy. They burn through all the excuses. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Again, the book of Revelation is intended to be highly rich in symbolism. We're not meant to take every last thing with a crass literalism. He's telling us something about himself. I mean, if we're going to be that serious, right? I mean, I wonder how the Lord Jesus talks with a sword in his mouth. That'd be hard to talk, right? It's the sword of the word. It's the devouring sword. It's the, the devouring word, the word of judgment, the word of destruction. His eyes are like a flame of fire penetrating and devouring everything. And on his head are many diadems. Now, this is interesting because we contrast this with some of these beasts, but more particularly the dragon back in Revelation chapter 12. And we see him with seven heads, 10 horns and seven crowns. And we know that these crowns are a temporary crown, right? It's a crown achieved by deceit. Jesus has many crowns, many diadems. On his head are many diadems because this is the true king. This is the faithful and true one. He is the true 
son of man, son of David, coming in royal kingship to take back what is rightfully his and to give it to his people. On his head are many diadems. And notice verse 12, the end. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Oh, friends, this is so precious. We read sometimes in the Old Testament how a name or God, you know, withheld the sharing of a name. You think of, uh, you think of uh, uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel and he wanted to know the angel's name and the angel would not tell him. We read of Samson's parents who want to know the, the name of this angelic visitor and he says, I'm not gonna tell you my name, but I'll tell you it's wonderful. You see, when you know a person's name, there's an element of control. There's an element of being able to wrap your arms around them and fit them into your box and understand them. But when Christ comes again in glory, there is something about him that this world has never, ever, ever seen. We, the world will see a side of the Lord Jesus that no one has ever seen before. No one knows but himself. There's an element, a side, an attribute of his that, yeah, came out here and there in the turning of, over of tables in the temple. There was, a ta- there was an element of seeing his holy wrath when we see parents, mothers wanting to bring their children for Jesus to bless them and the disciples held them back and we see Jesus's righteous anger there. But oh, friends, we on that last day will see a side of him that no one knows but himself because it will be revealed in that day for those witnessing it. We will see a wrath so fierce that it will make the flood of Noah's day look like nothing. We will see an element to the Lord Jesus Christ that will make the hills and the mountains shudder We will see kings and captains and all of their strong armies begging for rocks to bury them, Revelation chapter 6, to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. He has a name known only to himself because that will be the day when he reveals his righteous wrath in all of its burning fury against his enemies. I think if we were to translate this in the modern Trevino version, we could say, you have no idea what's coming here. He has a name known only to himself, but it will be revealed in that day. Furthermore, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is not the blood that we spoke of or we saw back in Genesis, or Revelation chapter 5. The blood of the lamb that ransomed people for God. No, this takes us back to Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 3 where we find the question, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? Why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? And then God speaks, I have trodden the winepress alone. Their lifeblood spouted on my garments and stained all my apparel. You see, the imagery that we are given here in Revelation 19 is that of a warrior who has come to slaughter his enemies. (coughs) 
when it comes to certain eschatological views, particularly post-millennialism, something in me wants to believe that, wants to believe that the gospel will triumph. And one post-millennial view is that what we see in Revelation 19, 11 through 21 is really a picture of the church age where Jesus is writing victoriously and the gospel is conquering the world. I want to believe that. But the imagery that we are given here is that of judgment and slaughter. That's not, those aren't, those aren't synonyms for conversion. Those aren't synonyms for salvation and, 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 and being brought to Christ. This is judgment. This is judgment. The name by which he is called is the word of God. This is not new to John. This is how John began his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Later on, we find that this word took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The name by which he is called is the word of God. This is God's word to humanity. This is God's final word. This is God's greatest word. This is God's most gracious word. And this is God's just and righteous word. If God could speak one word to humanity, it would be Jesus Christ. If God could speak one thing to humanity, he would present his son because in his son is the fullness of all that God has revealed for life and godliness, for time and for eternity. He is the word of God. In time past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And after making purification for sins, this word sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as he inherited a name that is infinitely greater than the angels. He is the word of God. Moving on to verse 14, we find that he's not alone. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The armies of heaven are with him. Now we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when Jesus returns, he will return with those who have fallen asleep. And so there's debate as to who these people are. Who, are, who is this army arrayed in white on these horses? By the way, the fact that he's riding a white horse, that would have meant something for these original hearers. Because when you would go and a king would go and conquer a city or a town or a country, he would come back on a white horse. So the mere appearance of this king on a white horse is already announcing that he's coming back and there's victory. He's coming back for battle, but the battle's already called. He's coming back and there's triumph already. So there's debate as to who these, angel, who these figures are. Are they the angels or are they the saints? My answer, I think, biblically is yes. Because we find throughout the Gospels, Jesus talking about, especially in, let's say, Matthew chapter 13, the parable chapter, that the Son of Man is going to send forth his angels upon his return to gather people for judgment. Jude talks about the Lord. He's quoting Enoch the Lord coming with 10,000s of his holy ones. 
And again, are those holy ones saints or are they angels? Well, I think it's both. But particularly in the book of Revelation, who are the ones arrayed in white constantly? Who are the ones in white linen? Well, we just saw back in the earlier part of Revelation 19. They are the bride of Christ. They are the saints. So he's coming back with his people. He's coming back with his people. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Again, this is not conversion. This is not the gospel. I mean, as much as I want to believe that, it goes against the general flow of thought here. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, not to convert, not to convict, not to regenerate, but to strike down the nations and he will rule them. Another translation might say, shepherd them with the rod of iron. He's coming back in fulfillment of Psalm 2, that messianic king who is said to break the nations with a rod of iron. Another chapter dealing with God in his wrath coming to judge Psalm 2. And he goes on in verse 15 to say that he will tread, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The picture is of thorough judgment. He will enter into that wine press and he will tread those grapes to make wine. He will come and his wrath will be unleashed once and for all at the end of the age. And verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no mistake as to who he is. Isn't it amazing that he can be given several names in this chapter and yet still have a name that is known only to himself? He is called faithful and true. He is called the word of God. He is called the king of kings and lord of your lords. And yet there is still an element about him that has yet to be revealed that will cause his enemies to shudder in absolute terror and dread. Thank God that where we will be in that day is following him with him in white, in white. Now, if we die before then, we'll probably get to enjoy the ride with him. But if he comes back in our time, we'll be caught up anyways to meet him. But either way, we'll be with him. First Thessalonians 4 says, thus we will always be with the Lord. So whether we, he comes back and we're here on earth, we're gonna be with him. Whether we die and go to heaven and come back with him in his return, we'll be with him, arrayed in white, on these horses, celebrating the victory. Next, we not only see the coming judge, but we see the gruesome invitation. Look at verses 17 and 18. And this is chilling. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So this is all of humanity, all of 
the godless humanity that will be here on that last day. This is all of the world. And he makes sure that we don't miss anything. He's not just coming back for wicked rulers. He's not just coming back for great influential people. He says for all men, small and great. Kings and janitors. All classes of men. There's no escape here. That's the point. But, but, but why this is a gruesome... And there's something about this invitation. Because if you read what's happening here, you would think that the invitation would go out after the battle. That Christ would come and slaughter his enemies. Slaughter God's enemies. And then the angel comes and invites the birds of the heaven to come and devour by the way, this was ancient imagery for whenever there was battles. And in Israel's mind, to not be buried was a disgrace. To not be given a proper burial was disgraceful. And so the fact that there's not even proper burial here, it just shows that there's, there's no honor in their death. Because sin cannot be honored. Sin cannot be blessed a life of ignoring God and blaspheming God in heart and in life is not an honorable thing. But the fact that the angel is inviting before the slaughter, again, is a preview that, hey, just watch. You're going to be able to devour the flesh of kings and all these men. Why? Because he's calling the victory here. That's what's, that's what's happening. He's calling it. It's like saying, birds, get ready. Birds, prepare. Birds, just wait. You're going to have the feast of a lifetime. And he's in the sun, capturing everyone's attention. The brightest thing in the sky. There's no mistake as to what's happening here. This really draws our attention back to Ezekiel 38 and... 39, where we read of the battle of Gog and Magog, that that ultimately points to this final battle, the battle of the end. Ezekiel 39, as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. In Ezekiel, it's called the battle that God is preparing. In Revelation, it is called the battle, the supper of God. The supper of God. Ezekiel 39, verse 18. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink of the blood of the princes of the earth, and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors. And by the way, when you look at verse 16, the fact that he mentions his thigh, some commentators point out that the significance of this is really goes back to some of the ways that covenants and promises were made in the Old Testament, where you would put your hand under the, right, the, the thigh of a person and you'd, you'd make an oath or you'd swear or you'd make a promise. You find that in the life of Abraham and his servant in Genesis 24, 9, where the servant puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him regarding his son and a wife for his son. And then later on, when uh, Israel or Jacob is about to die, he calls his son Joseph over and he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, 
Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Don't bury my bones in Egypt. Bring them back. Bring them back to the land. And so the fact that, I mean, just again, symbolism, significance that we find here in the book of Revelation, Jesus is coming back with King of Kings, Lord of Lords, written on his garments and on his thigh in faithfulness to his promise and his oath and his own swearing that he will come and make things right. He will keep his covenant. He will keep his promise to put an end to all sin and rebellion in his creation. That is the gruesome invitation, even before it happens, even before the feast. And now we come to the final point, the final slaughter, verses 19 to 21. And I saw the beast. This is that first beast that Satan calls from the sea. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The picture here is humanity raging against God as Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2 says, Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, they posture themselves to take, to go against the Lord and against his anointed. A chapter that's quoted, yes, in David's day, against David, but also quoted by Peter to talk about the time when the kings of the earth assembled themselves against the Lord Jesus and all the peoples of, the, of, of Israel, the rulers, the religious rulers, to take, count, to take counsel against Jesus, how they, might put, how they might put him to death. So it has application there, but it also has application to the very last day when, again, this one who comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron finds all of this resistance. Armies gathered against him and his people, notice, his people as well. And the beast, verse 12, here's the, here's the anticlimactic thing of the... <laughs> and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So much for a battle, so much for a war. The beast is captured, the false prophet. It's interesting because, and I think rightly so, one commentator pointed out how more than likely this beast and this false prophet, these beasts in Revelation, they, they find a different fate, or a different way to exit, I, I should say, as the, the, the people, the, the individual people here. So it could be that as humanity is really slain by the sword and experiences death, and then the second death, these beasts just kind of escape the whole thing and just go straight to the pit, which, according to commentators, they believe that the reason that is is because these are more, these are symbolic of, of systems in the world. The, the, the political power, the first beast, and religious deception, the second beast, all kinds of religious deception will be done away with, and that is going to be a glorious day when political powers that are anti-God and anti-Christ will be gone once and for all. When the persecution of God's people is done once and for all, when he deals with the kings of this earth, 
the rulers of this wicked world. And by the way, we find God's people in the book of Revelation to be awaiting people. We find the martyrs in heaven saying, oh Lord, how long till you avenge our blood? Right now is a time of waiting. We're waiting for the return of Christ, but we're also waiting. There's saints that have gone before us who are waiting for God to take vengeance on their enemies. And one of the things we learn in this text is that vengeance is his. That's why Paul says, don't avenge yourselves, beloved. Leave it up to the wrath of God. Don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And we see that here in the book of Revelation, here in chapter 19. The beast is captured, with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Notice the order here. The beast deceived those who had formerly received the mark. And man, people go wild with this, don't they? Ooh, look up uh, Mark of the Beast on Google later. You'll get microchips and all kinds of stuff today. And... But really, again, we have to interpret the book of Revelation according to the Bible and not according to Fox News or CNN or Bill Gates' stuff or whatever's out there today. You see, the significance of the mark on the hand and the forehead takes us back, wonder of wonders, to the Old Testament, where we find in Exodus 13, 9, this feast will be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial on your forehead between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And then later in that memorable chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and, you shall, and when you shall rise. And you shall bind them, bind my words as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead. Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The context and imagery of the mark of the beast was laid down way back in the Pentateuch. It's the idea of, of who you're loyal to. You show your loyalty to Yahweh by taking his word in your mind and working it out through your hands. That's, that's, that's just... That, that's just biblical imagery. What you believe manifests itself in how you behave with the hands. And so as Greg Beal points out, the forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand, practical outworking of that commitment. And likewise, as a travesty of the signs of membership in the old community of faith, the beast's marks on the foreheads and on the hands of the worshipers refer to their loyal, consistent, wholehearted to com commitment to him. So if you're worried about accidentally getting the mark and then being eternally doomed, be at rest, friends. Do you really think that the all-sufficient work of Christ as our Savior can be nullified by accidentally going and getting a chip in your hand? Friends, this, whatever this mark is, and I, 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 
Beale has good reason to believe that this is trans-temporal. In other words, that this, this kind of trans, transcends all ages. So, for example, in first century, Christian, first, first century church, you had everyone worshiping Caesar, and the church was pressured to worship Caesar. If you were to go and pledge your loyalty to Caesar, that was one way of really severing your loyalty to Christ. But it's something in every age, isn't it? Every age has something to bow to. Every age, in every era, Babylon, the great prostitute, the great harlot, is calling you in to her, calling you in away from Christ. So whatever this mark is, we know that for sure it is a conscious act to turn away from God and to pledge your loyalty to yourself, to Satan, to sin, to this world, right? You don't have Christians accidentally getting this mark. This is, this is something deliberate in the book of Revelation. But all that's going to be done away with. Christ is going to defeat his enemies. As we come to the final verses, it says these two, the, 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 the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, the rest of humanity, were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Merry Christmas, church. <laughs> the rest were slain by what? The word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus said that it will be the word of God that judges people on the last day. The word that proceeds forth from eyes that see everything, that devour all masks, all hypocrisies. The word that comes forth from the mouth of Christ will be what slaughters his enemies on the last day. What word will that be? We find hints of it in Matthew chapter 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That sword comes out of his mouth and slaughters the unrepentant, the unbelieving. The argument being advanced in this entire picture is that the King of Kings is coming again and he will bring a complete end to all evil, all godless persecution, all religious systems that deceive the people of this earth, and the message for the church is that you will follow in his wake. You will follow him. You will reign with him. You will be with him in all of this. Friends, we are still a waiting people. In fact, Romans chapter 8, that colossal chapter, Paul the Apostle says that you were saved into this hope. When Paul was talking about the sufferings of this present life not being comparable to the glory that's to be revealed to us, he says that the creation is waiting. Even the creation waits with 
eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So that imagery we have in the Psalms of the rivers singing and the the trees clapping their hands because Yahweh's coming. This is that. The creation is waiting with eager longing for the day when God's sons are revealed for all to see. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You were saved and you were made a waiter. Not a waiter like at Denny's, but a waiter. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's coming. Paul says to the Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. No wonder Paul said to the Thessalonians, we don't want you to be unaware, uninformed brothers about those who have died in Christ that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How are they coming? Possibly on white horses, if we're to take that literally. For since we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord, this is what we declare. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul said to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is his second coming. The writer of Hebrews calls it his second coming. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. James says it too. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. I could go on and on. Peter talks about it, mentions waiting three times in like a handful of verses. 
2 Peter 3, verses 11 to 15, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Question is, how do we wait? Every sermon should have a so what behind it. Think of Steve Lawson learning how to preach and R.C. Sproul's there with a sign that says, so what? What does this mean? Jesus is coming, Merry Christmas, slaughter coming. Merry Christmas, so what? Friends, we're to wait, but how we wait makes all the difference in the world. You see, we're not just waiting the way someone waits for the traffic light to turn green, sitting there doing nothing. Some people are waiting like that, and that's not honoring to God. We're not just, all right, Lord, I'm rapture ready. Haven't told a soul about you in three years. No, friends, if you would turn with me to the book of Jude, and we'll close here. One book to the left. Jude describes here how we are to wait. What our waiting should look like. You see... God's people have always been awaiting people, but that doesn't mean they have been an idle people. It doesn't mean they have been a passive people. They have been an active, busy people. Abraham was told that he would have a baby, that Sarah would have a baby. Did that mean Abraham did nothing? No, he spent time with his wife was active, and God fulfilled his promise. Look at Jude. Verse 17. I can't say chapter because it's really not a chapter. But you, beloved, you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, Worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you, and now listen how to wait, how we are to wait, but you, beloved, number one, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That's number one. This is God honoring waiting right here. This is Christ exalting waiting. Number one, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Devour the word, get the word in you. You yourself get in the word, study good theology, listen to good sermons, listen to good preaching, read good books. You can't be a Christian and not be a reader. Pray for God to give you a heart to devour truth and books that help you to love the truth and be loyal to the truth and to share the truth. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. That is your faith that is so unlike anything in this world. It is most holy because its object is most holy, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, secondly, the second ingredient for God honoring waiting is this, praying in the Holy Spirit. Why does he say that? Because we don't know what to pray for as we ought, like Romans 8 says. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us to pray according to the will of God. In other words, as you're building yourselves up in your most holy faith, also commune with God, fellowship with God in the power of his spirit, 
Pray for great things. Pray for great conversions. Pray for the lost. Pray for maturity in the church. Pray for unity. Pray for an abundance of love. Pray that the hearts of believers would be knit together in love and that their hearts would be encouraged, that they might reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Spirit's help. Ask for the Spirit's perseverance. When we pray in the flesh, we endure maybe 30 seconds. But when we pray in the Spirit, we can pray fruitfully and fervently all day. Having dedicated times, yes, but just going about our day in the power of the Spirit, communing with God, praying for the lost, praying to be a better husband, praying to be a better wife, praying to be fruitful, praying to be a faithful believer. Prayer, building, ingredient number three, notice. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God by keeping yourselves within the parameters of God's warnings and God's promises. Keep yourselves in the love of God by devouring a proverb a day. Keep yourselves in the love of God by not violating your conscience and sinning against your conscience. Keep yourself in the love of God by turning your eyes away from beholding worthless things. Keep yourselves in the love of God by being, remaining pure in heart, knowing that you will see God. Keep yourself in the love of God by putting the flesh to death, by not feeding the flesh, but starving your flesh so that it's weak, so that when it rises up, it's weak. Don't feed it. Keep yourself in the love of God. And now, the fourth one, waiting. All of this really is inclusive. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's a fifth ingredient though, and that comes in verses 22 and following. Have mercy on those who doubt. How? Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You know what it means to wait? in a Christ-honoring way, by taking the time to love people, to snatch them out of the fire by bringing them the gospel. Build yourself up, yes. Pray in the Holy Spirit, yes. Keep yourself in the love of God, yes. Wait, yes, but not be passive. Go and snatch people out of the fire. You are God's appointed firemen and firewomen to bring people out of the fire because you just read of their, their outcome. You read of their fate in Revelation 19, and yet what an honor that God would entrust to you this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to go forth and bring and pour forth that sweet, glorious gospel onto a thirsty, dying, damned world. You say, I don't, I don't know how to communicate the gospel. Well, there's the first aspect of waiting. Build yourself up in your most holy faith so that you can convey that holy gospel to an unholy world. So let us wait well, let us wait with patience, let us wait in ways that God prescribes so that we can glorify his great name. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I just ask, what are you waiting for? If you're here and you're not in Christ, I mean, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for life just to get a little bit better? Are you waiting for some kind of financial stability? Maybe college, maybe grow up, have kids, get married, hopefully in the other order. 
What are you waiting for? Turn to Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. If you're not in Christ, mark it down. Your heart will only, only, only ever get harder by the deceitfulness of sin, which is your master. You have a master over you that's that, that just hardens your heart every day. Why would you do that? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Fall upon the sweetness of his word of grace and peace. Lest in that day you find yourself devoured by his word of judgment and condemnation.